0: Last week's text when we gathered together in the book of Revelation was from that heavenly throne room where there were representatives from all of creation gathered around the Lamb, centered on Jesus. This week and on, though, is where it starts to get a little dicey. See, here's where we need some interpretive help. Here's where we need to keep our focus on the Lamb. John had just exclaimed how distraught he was that there was this giant secret of the universe under lock and key with no one to open it. The whole key to history and salvation was sitting there with no interpreter, no Rosetta uh, Rosetta Stone to read the scroll. And just then pops up the lion who is also the lamb the living sacrifice, the the victor who's also the victim. How can all these apparent opposites all be true? How can they hold together? How can they be true in the same time, in the same space, in the same person? This is how God is revealing the truth about the world, past, present, and future, in the embodied paradox of Jesus Christ. So we head into the first of our famous series of sevens, and these sevens always pop up in the book of Revelation. Seven seals, seven scrolls, seven bowls, and seven is that perfect number. Seven days of creation ending in that perfect and complete rest of God to which we're called and included. Or Jesus in the Gospels uh, entreats us to forgive seven times, seven times. This is inexhaustible human loving kindness drawing on and sharing God's inexhaustible divine grace. And seven, seven is kind of like a, I think the word is like synecdoche, and I'm not talking about the place in New York, but a synecdoche. Do you know what this word means, synecdoche? It's like uh, when the parts speak for the whole. And so since seven is a number of wholeness, when you encounter seven in Revelation, be prepared to learn a little bit about the whole grain of the universe, how things work and what's actually happening. So as the seals start to unfold, the vision uses a series of symbols, and really vision uh, symbols on top of symbols to describe the whole of our present experience and how this all comes to a head in the future. Some of these images are really evocative. They capture our imagination. And they show up in our pop culture when I took a really great Revelation course in seminary and we all had to present a project to the class on the book of Revelation and popular culture and some of the projects were like 1980s politics and the Reagan era and I did a presentation on Johnny Cash someone did uh, something on Revelation in Jonestown. Uh, it's, it's crazy all the ways that Revelation has informed Uh, our imagination. Maybe some of you are readers of the Left Behind series. Uh, Revelation funds some of these imaginations in healthy and unhealthy ways. Uh, This morning I'm going to take a liberty because it is Father's Day. This isn't the most sports um, uh, illustration friendly congregation that I've ever been in, but it's Father's Day so I have a little capital to spend here. and I'm going to talk about sports for a minute. Uh, here's, here's a really um, amazing and, and, and uh, brilliant way that our text from today, from Revelation 6, made its way into the pop culture and sports. Uh, here's, here's this famous headline. Outlined against the blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, their names are death, destruction, pestilence, and famine but those are our aliases. Their real names are Stuhldryer, Crowley, Miller, and Layden. They formed the crest of the South Bend Cyclone before which another fighting army team was swept over the precipice of the polo grounds this afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down upon the bewildering panorama spread out upon the green plain below. Pretty dramatic way to talk about sports. Death, destruction, and pestilence and famine as the names for a backfield for the 1924 Notre Dame fighting Irish team under Newt Rockney. And this is definitely a, a different era because for as apparently dominant and amazing as these four horsemen of the apocalypse were, the final score of that game was 13-7. to 7. Not a lot of scoring happening. This has got to be one of the most famous contemporary uses of this vivid imagery of the four horsemen from our reading, and it was made uh, by legendary sports writer Grantland Rice. But um, there, there's there's certainly uh, uh, plenty of others that that pop to mind. Uh, For instance, uh, on the screen, there's this famous woodcut by Albrecht Durer, who's just made hundreds of these woodcuts of biblical scenes and it. It features all four, from right to left, kind of reverse of how you would think to read them, from the background into the foreground. So the rightmost rider um, is the white horse with the bow, and the final pale horse rider is skeletal. It's death personified. And then uh, William Blake is also always good for a a take on trying to depict biblical art. So this is circa around 1800. And his take focuses mostly on the pale horse rider who is muscular and aggressive. just as a refresher, the four riders l- represent the four seals in our reading today. The first rider is a rider on a white horse with a bow and a crowd, and, and it says he is a conqueror bent on conquest. The second rider is a rider on a red horse, a rider representing war and bringing war with a sword taking peace and causing people to kill one another. The third rider's on a black horse. It's the rider of famine, the pair of scales. And, and uh, oftentimes, when we um, think of the image of a scale, we think of justice. And, and that's a little bit of what what's happening here, but it's they're actually um, literal scales weighing out food and prices. And the uh, luxury goods, of course, are unaffected by this famine. And the final rider on the pale green horse is death. It feels, for as esoteric and strange as these images are, it feels like there's a certain wisdom and a logic to it all that we can really recognize and that's really familiar and kind of indisputable. We know it, we see it, we feel it. Imperialism and colonialism and conquering inevitably leads to social and ecological and biological evil, to war, to famine, to death. Whether this impulse shows up between nations with big budgets and arsenals or between people with big egos, it happens over and over again. It happens on a global geopolitical scale and it happens on a local neighborhood scale. The first move is usually to wield power and authority and to try to take over. Maybe that's what, you're, what you do in your life when you are in uh, stressful or unhealthy um, uh, cycles or habits. When it feels like everything is out of control, you try to grab control. The, the tricky thing, see that impulse is ambiguous, but the tricky thing is this image of the white horse rider in Revelation is also kind of ambiguous. Later on, the, the rider on the white horse is really obviously Jesus, the one who conquers. And famously in Romans, Romans 8, we are known as more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So how can this be? What is up with this? What is the difference and maybe more disturbingly, if Jesus is at the helm of this kind of crusade, this sort of conquest, if so, should we follow his lead and how? See, these are some of the questions that Revelation seems to pick at that are still really prescient, really in our face on a day-to-day basis. John's revelation seems really deeply tuned in to how all of those positive influences towards stewarding and control, impulses to live wisely in the world and to share the gospel of the truth can really morph quickly and be mutilated really subtly and easily into really unchristian behaviors that are predicated on force and greed. The hard thing is that sometimes, indeed, Jesus is the rider on the white horse. And we're called, sometimes even in scripture, to be resident aliens, folks who live in, quote, a colony of heaven in the country of death. But we always have to go back to, to these symbols that are really intricate and complicated and intertextual. We have to remember that the bow that this white horse rider carries, when it's Jesus, this bow has to be more akin to the bow in the Noah story that ushers in a covenant of peace with no more flood and no more uh, destruction. That God hangs God's bow in the clouds because he's putting away the impulse to destroy And instead ushering in uh, an existence and a future of patience and forbearance instead. And the way this white horse with Jesus on it, the way this white horse rider conquers is by the word that goes out of his mouth. Remember that from uh, previous weeks in Revelation? That out of the lamb's mouth is this sharp two-edged sword In Hebrews says this is a sword that penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The image here is more of surgery that heals by a scalpel taking out a malignancy than blunt force trauma that harms. Make no mistake. Jesus might ride on and reconfigure our vision for the white horse of victory. But Jesus never rides on the second horse, full stop. Jesus never rides on that second red horse of war, never. We don't see it. But we do know how this sort of trickle down works when someone is on that white horse of conquest less than Jesus or different than Jesus. We know how that trickle-down works. Conquest leads to war, and war leads to famine, and ecological abuse, and famine, and ecological abuse leads to death. What starts with an impulse for gain leads inexorably to loss. And the people that feel that loss most acutely are the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death already. We see this in our country, in our country's history where First Nations communities whose ancestors have long inhabited land get pushed to reservations and siloed into communities without economic opportunity. We've seen this and we still see it in the toll this takes on creation in Appalachian coal communities in Western North Carolina and Kentucky and Tennessee where people's livelihoods are making them sick. We see this in our heartland, the breadbasket of America where industrial farmers are stuck in a sick cycle of borrowing to buy seed that's been engineered to not grow from season to season. It leaves them on the hook for expenses they can't bear and at the mercy of weather they can't control. We see this locally in our neighborhoods in, our, in Durham. We see this in Lakewood, we see this in Lyon Park. We see this, and this is a good plug for the, uh, the Durham Pilgrimage of Pain and Hope put on by Durham Cares. You'll learn some of this history and you'll learn how freeways carve out communities and people get pushed out into the margins from where they've lived for years or generations. We see this, how housing is no longer affordable and landlords aren't motivated by much else but profit. The rider on the black horse of famine holds scales in his hand that don't work right. There's a thumb on these scales. You see, the rich and powerful buy and sell and eat and prosper. Luxury goods are recession-proof. Cocktail parties happen amidst the rubble and the chamber band is playing while the Titanic heads straight for an iceberg. We feel this if we're paying attention. All over, we feel how creation groans outwardly and we groan inwardly for the redemption of our land, our communities, of our bodies. And if we see this logic happen at a deeply local and human level, one leading to the other on down the line, conquest to war to famine to death, there's also a sense that that the end trickles up to the beginning. That the destination sets the course. That death with a capital D is in charge and creates the mentality for scarcity. Which of course leads to violence. Which always leads to the consolidation and misuse of power. It's turtles all the way down and it's turtles all the way up. Death is the cause and death is the effect. In D- The same goes in reverse. Death is the effect and death is the cause. Scripture, especially the way the Apostle Paul writes, talks about all of this in terms of the powers and the principalities, those deep forces that trickle, that trickily perpetuate sin and bring about destruction, that enslave and enlist us in our own slavery, that makes us less than human and then also force us to get in on the work of dehumanizing others. This is the force of sin and death. It's subtle, but it's insidious, and before you know it, you're caught up in it, and it can feel impossible to get out. And right here is the revelation of the fifth seal. That those caught up in death in a really specific way are under the throne, and they're called martyrs. Remember the, the, the word in Greek for witnesses sounds a lot like martyrs. So these martyrs are also witnesses, faithful ones, ones who have been dealt death but have chosen not to deal it for themselves. So that makes them interrupters. They've had their lives interrupted by death, but in choosing to suffer rather than to cause suffering, they become witnesses that death isn't really in charge in the way we assume it has been or needs to be. These interrupters with the slaughtered land, they've been slaughtered and have taken death's sting out of circulation. Don't get me wrong, let's not romanticize it or think that in their lifetimes their deaths didn't cause deep sadness and sorrow or massive trauma in their communities. It's just that their fragility shows everyone, puts it on display just how durable the kingdom of Christ is. When you talk about these faithful ones, these martyrs under the throne, I can't help but think about the folks who were killed a few years back in the shooting of Mother Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. If you remember, a, a young white supremacist terrorist targeted the historical church. Their problem was they were too open. They accept, they put forth hospitality, and he accepted their hospitality at their Bible study. And then in a premeditated act, he slaughtered nine brothers and sisters in Christ and injured three more. But what the shooter meant as a conquering moment that would then start to tip over the dominoes and trigger the second horseman of war in his In his talk about what his motives were, Dylan Roof said that he meant to incite a race war. That was all subverted, that was all interrupted when family members upon family member after family member in the midst of deep sorrow and real grief expressed forgiveness and non-vengeance towards him. For them death was certainly the cause but it was no longer the total effect. In the words of the Apostle Paul, who both knew deep pain and sorrow and was on both the giving and the receiving ends of terror, he writes to the Corinthian church, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Then he goes on to say, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, under the altar is where the blood of the sacrifice collects. That's where the martyrs sit. And they wonder aloud, how long until this violent and unjust world is made right? How long until victory is much more obvious than it seems? This suffering seems really real. And this is the key question for our faith. Can we withstand? Can we choose over and over to live in this tension, in this contradiction that what... Feels like losing is actually winning. That the losers are actually the winners. That those around us who are getting fleeced are those who are actually in on it, who are rich, who are favored in the kingdom. This is like the beatitudinal imagination that Jesus recognized and taught and made possible. You remember that from the Sermon on the Mount: "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Luke's Gospel has Jesus saying, "Just blessed are the poor, or blessed are those who mourn; they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek; they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness; they will be filled up. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers." they'll be called children of god blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness theirs is the kingdom blessed are you when people insult you persecute you falsely say all sorts of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you as the next seal opens there's a catastrophe seems like too much truth has been revealed, so everything starts to fall apart. There's this great leveling. It says that kings and princes and rich and mighty and slave and free all run for cover, and it's awful because the seismic shift of the Lamb's wrath is starting. And then there's an interlude. How about that? We don't get a seventh seal until chapter 8 next week. Next, Next week we'll will resolve this cliffhanger. In the meantime, we're left in suspense of hearing about the Lamb's wrath. Wrath, God's dealing justly with injustice. And I bet when you invited your father here on Father's Day, you didn't expect that we were going to broach the topic of God's wrath. (laughs) We scarcely have time to do this topic justice. Uh, There's so many misconceptions. Of what God's wrath is like, what its purpose is, and who bears it, if it is really even necessary for modern, sophisticated folks like us. But I think here we're given a great key to understanding a little bit more about God's wrath. Following the list of the 144,000 multitude, that's 12 times 12 times 1,000, so Israel times disciples times a really big number. And then added to that is every nation, tribe, people, and language. And then after that, there's all these songs, salvation songs and praise choruses. And there's this lingering outrage. Precisely how long will this interlude last? We can't even hold it together. How long till God makes things right? We can't stand to see how things are right now. If you don't think the Bible takes seriously lament and outrage and injustice, you're just not reading too well. Fleming Rutledge picks up on this question of how long. She says, Where's the outrage? It's God's own. It is the wrath of God against all that stands against his redemptive purposes. It's not an emotion. God's wrath is God's righteous activity in setting right what is wrong. It is God's intervention on behalf of all those who cannot help themselves. And we get an explanation of who those helpless ones are. The martyrs. We're told that they're the ones who made it through. And now they'll never hunger and they'll never thirst. That's beatitude speak. Nor will they be hung out to dry in the desert of adversity. It says, but the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to the spring of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is kind of a spoiler alert and a flash forward to the end of Revelation where that tree is the healing of the nations And it wipes away all the sorrow and all the tears from our eyes. This seems significant to me. This is not just a beautiful picture of healing and relief. It's not just a Psalm 23 style reference for like sustenance. But it's the drawing our weary and frightened eyes back to the center of the throne to the Lamb. This picture refocuses us and reorients us and reminds us that this Lamb will also be our shepherd. The Lamb will also shepherd us. This wrath of God that makes things right doesn't just knock us around with a rod or scoop us up with his crook, but lives among us as our fellow sheep, is innocent. Is a sacrifice, has become the sacrifice that we needed but couldn't be for ourselves. Has beaten death by means of Jesus' own death, has come out the other side, alive and welcoming us into this costly, hopeful, full, and real life that no longer needs to fear or follow the procession of the riders on the horses. We're no longer in the death, scarcity, violence, power game because we're shepherded by a lamb. We're led by a lamb in whose death we live and in whose abundance we share and by whose peace we are given peace and in whose vulnerability we find the very kingdom of God. This is the witness of the martyrs. William Kavanaugh puts it, a martyr is one who lives imaginatively as if death does not exist. If you want a good summary of what it means to live the Christian life, it's following the resurrection. and There's really no other way to live the Christian life because if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, it's all foolish and it's all garbage. If you want to live the Christian life, be the sort of person who lives imaginatively as if death does not exist. And imaginatively is not a fairy tale. Uh, Imaginatively means to have the power of your imagination to be guided by something that's stronger than death. That's God's life. That's the spirit. That's resurrection. This is a revelation of the Lamb's wrath. It's powerful and frightening, but it's born by God himself for us. It's born by Jesus the martyr. God doesn't pour out God's wrath because he's mad at people or places or things. God bears that purifying wrath upon God's self. In Jesus the martyr, the shepherd lamb. It's in this that we might be healed and restored with all creation. And this is the invitation that we receive when we come in a few minutes to this table. To remember Jesus, to partake of the body in the blood of Jesus. To be healed and restored and to participate in Christ's death that we might also by the Spirit be participants in God's life that we might jump into the stream of living water and have our tears wiped away as we experience and express hope and healing and hospitality in Jesus for our neighborhood. Amen.